God in heaven, we marvel at your greatness. We are in awe of who you are. And Father, as we read, as we hear uh, proclaimed your word this morning, may our awe in you only go deeper, grow greater and richer. May our faith in you be strengthened, our assurance in your promises grow, and our rejoicing in your victory, uh, that you have worked and that you will work, that you even are working now in us. May that overflow in us. I pray that um, uh, though you use uh, weak people, that you would accomplish all that you set out to do. And I thank you that our confidence is not in ourselves, but in our wonderful, great God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to First Chronicles chapter 18. First Chronicles 18. Last week, we witnessed one of the greatest events in history. You'll remember that. But you'll also remember that this wasn't so much an event as it was a conversation. A conversation between God and David. But a conversation in which a covenant was made and promises were given. Now, what can make a conversation a pivotal moment in history? What can turn a discussion into a history-making event. I could have a discussion with you right now where I made promises to you. I could make great promises. I could make earth-shattering promises. I could promise you all an island on the Mediterranean with a villa with penguins serving you every morning and evening. I could even promise you a spot on the roster of the Stanley Cup-winning Toronto Maple Leafs. But a conversation and promises are not actually that amazing unless events follow them, events in which those promises are kept. That's what can turn a conversation into a historical event. Now think of our readers of Chronicles who have just read about this history-making conversation between God and David. They are feeling beaten down, discouraged. They are under the thumb of foreign rulers and powers. Now, they have the book of Chronicles to remind them in this downtrodden situation of who they are. But they are also given these Chronicles to remind them of the commitments and promises that God made to them. They're in a situation where it's easy to forget those promises maybe even to feel like those promises weren't being honored, that the everlasting covenant God had made with David didn't seem so everlasting, maybe even looked expired. They need the book of Chronicles, not just so that they can read that promises were made, but also so that they can start to see evidence that God keeps his promises, that God is able and willing to... Uh, to do what he promises he will do. His promises have not been rescinded. They can be confident that what God has began, he will, even in their own day, continue to bring to completion. And we might also need that reminder in our tunnel vision that looks at our specific moment 
or specific culture in history. We forget the world drowns out our confidence in the promises God has made. So we need not only to see the promises that God has given, but we need to be reminded of the history in which God keeps his promises, has already honored many of his promises. As we can look back even on Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished, we have all the more reason to be confident that we have a God who not only promises to do great things, but is able to do what he promises. So let's start by reading 1 Chronicles 18 this morning. 1 Chronicles 18. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Gath and its villages out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah Hamath, as he went to set up his monument at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,000 chariots, 7,000 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria and Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from uh, Tibhath and from Kun, cities of Hadadezer, David took a large amount of bronze. With it, Solomon made the bronze sea and the pillars and the vessels of bronze. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, king of Zobath, he sent his son, Hadaram, to date King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had often been at war with Tau. And he sent all sorts of articles of gold, of silver, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and the gold that he had carried off from all the nations, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and Amalek. And Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, killed 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and he administered justice and equity to all his people. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Shevshah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were the chief officials in the service of the king. There's a pretty clear and simple resounding note in this passage. And that note is victory. We are witnessing the victories of King David. We are watching his conquests. We are seeing him build an empire. We can see the greatness of David here. We are meant to see that on display. The validity of his rule, the might of his rule is being shown. His reign is being established. But then we are also meant to see behind all of these victories, behind the strength of David, how this is God working these victories to keep his promises to David. And that's our first point this morning. The victory of the Messiah is from the Lord. 
Twice we hear this refrain from the narrator. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And when we read chapter 19 later, we're going to see Joab and his brother in a particularly tight spot in battle. And Joab says to his brother, be strong and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. God wants these victories to be accomplished by David and by Israel. He wants them to receive the praise, the glory that comes with achieving these victories. But God wants his own power to be on display here through his Messiah, through his people. David and his army act, they fight, knowing that if they are victorious, that is only because the Lord gave victory, only if it seems good to God. And they know that it does seem good to God to give them victory because of the promises that we have just heard God give David in 1 Chronicles 17. Let's turn back to chapter 17 here and read verses 7 to 14. 1 Chronicles 17, 7 to 14. This is God speaking through his prophet. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. David wants to build God a house, you'll remember. He desires to build a temple for the Lord, and God turns that promise back on David. David will not build a house. God will, in fact, build a house for David which is he will, uh, that he will establish an eternal reign through David and his family. And many of the promises that we see coming alongside or coinciding with that covenant are ones that we see being carried out even in the victories of David that we're reading about today. God, of course, says in chapter 17, he will subdue David's enemies. We see that quite clearly. That's going to be the foundation on which David's house is established. A king's reign is clearly much more secure when we see him victorious over his enemies. God also says he will make a name for David. That's what's happening through these conquests. David is known to have victory wherever he goes. And God also says that through David, he will appoint a place for his people to live in peace to be disturbed by their enemies no more. Now, the author of Chronicles, in recounting these victories, is more selective 
than the author of Samuel and Kings in the battles that he chooses to recount. He wants his readers and wants us to see very specific things about these victories. And we see that the four victories that are first given in this passage point to the north of Israel, to the south, to the east, and to the west. We are meant to see clearly that what David is doing is carrying out uh, empire building which establishes peace on the sides, all sides of Israel, every border of Israel given peace. Now this is a land where they can dwell secure, even as David's house is being made more secure. All of this culminates in establishing a firm foundation in which God can keep that central promise and covenant to establish David's house, to give him an eternal lineage. So we are watching God in these first steps of establishing David, showing, demonstrating to all the world that David is his chosen king, that he is his instrument that his house will be secure, because this is the house that is supported and upheld by God. Even for the readers of Chronicles, they can recognize, reading here, that there is a power behind the household of David, the kingship of David, greater than the power behind the household of Cyrus, or Darius, or Nebuchadnezzar, the seemingly great kings of the world in their time. These victories as the readers of Chronicles encounter them, are a commitment from God that he is powerful to bring about all of his promises and that he is righteous and willing to keep his promises. What he says comes true. What he has said will definitely come true. So whatever comes after these victories in Israel's history... If they start to encounter rockier times, times of trouble, when promises seem to be on shaky ground, they can look back at these initial victories, which remain a testament to what God is able to do and certainly will do. This can assure those first readers of Chronicles, God hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't forgotten the promises which still stand for them, the commitments that he has still made to them. The promises haven't gone away. And the God who is able to work those victories that he accomplished through David is powerful to continue to do all that he promises. And this is a good reminder for them that if they are currently experiencing a time where they are not seeing these victories, where they're not visibly looking at events that seem to be fulfilling God's promises, this is not because God is losing because the world has got him on the ropes and he's worried that maybe the nations of this world have the upper hand. This means that even when God's people are experiencing challenging times, when they appear to be defeated, this must also be a part of God's perfect plan to achieve his greatest victories, to keep his great promises to David and Israel. One thing that the sorry state of these readers of Chronicles who are living after the exile, who are living in a trodden down Jerusalem, one thing that their own state can remind them of as they look back at these victories is that what the narrator says is definitely true. Those victories were only from the Lord. They clearly were not rooted in the natural strength of the people. 
God's people cannot rely on themselves for victory. It's ironic that you can see all throughout Israel's history, and this is a testament to our nature, that times of prosperity and security, times where people are enjoying the victories God has won for them, are times when they are most prone to forget God. When they experience the events that demonstrate that God keeps his promises, they become all the more likely to forget his promises because they think that they won the battle. They achieved the peace. They gained this comfort through their own ability. Times of defeat remind us of who we are. They draw us back to know that we can do nothing apart from God. They remind us to look here and say that it is the Lord alone who gives victory. But then as they read about these victories, this first audience of Chronicles needed to remember that this is also a commitment that God will not leave them in that situation. It might be his plan for the moment that they be there, but he will not leave them downtrodden. God's ultimate plan is one of victory for himself, for his Messiah, for his people. We can recognize that all the more clearly now as we look upon David's greater descendant, the one who has already fulfilled so many of these covenant promises. We've already seen him work amazing victories even for us. When we were helpless, when we were incapable, when we were lost and downtrodden, enjoying only the rotten fruit of what we could get on our own, he came to wage a war with sin, with the accuser, with death itself. The cross and the resurrection from the dead is the Lord giving victory to his great Messiah, Jesus Christ. We get to live in the experience, the enjoyment of that victory. We even get to see in our own hearts victories over sin, over the world that oppresses, and we continue to hope in the future completion of that victory, where Jesus will see victory wherever he goes, and it will be visible to our eyes. Now, our confidence that God will complete what he started pulls us out of despair when we feel downtrodden, when we seem to be in a situation where that victory is not visible or being enjoyed. This confidence motivates us. Now, this confidence that God will ultimately be victorious, that he is able and willing to do what he promises, is not meant to make us lazy, leaving everything up to God's hands. If you want the victory, go get it. I'll be here watching television. The Lord has given us battles to fight with our sin with the lies and temptations of the devil, with people who promote worldviews that deny God and his righteousness. Our confidence in God is not one that leaves us to throw up our hands and say that he will have to fight instead of us. He works through his people. He worked through David and his men. He worked through Christ and those who have the spirit of Christ in them. So because you are confident 
that God will be victorious. Put on your armor and go to war. War with your sin. War with the temptation of the devil and use the strength that God supplies. You have the power of the Lord behind you. Proclaim the gospel boldly. Fight temptation confidently, knowing that God's spirit will work mightily. Say like Joab, be strong and let us use our strength for the people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him as we can also be confident in what seems good to our Lord. Even as we read in 1 Corinthians 15, knowing the victory he will have over sin and death is one that inspires us to labor, to work for him, to serve confidently. And then as we serve, as we are strong, we trust God. We trust his promises. Like these first readers of Chronicles, we see what God has done. We see what he says he will do. We trust what he will achieve. Chapter 18 closes with David establishing his reign. He has a stable government. Tribute is being brought to him. Many have made peace with him. He's appointed officers. And all of this, these victories, this established government, works towards keeping that other promise which God made in chapter 17, that David's son would build a house for God. Our second point this morning is this. The victory of the Messiah establishes God's dwelling with his people. So the theme of household is still front and center here. As God is establishing David's house through these victories, the Messiah is using his reign, using his established house to prepare a place for God to dwell among his people. David has already been told by God that he will not be the one to build the house himself, but his son will. So if David can't build it, he's going to do absolutely everything he can to pave the way to prepare for that construction to happen under his son. And God will use those victories of David, use this kingly work of David to prepare for that construction as well. The peace that David establishes is going to make it possible for all of Israel to be mobilized in the building of the temple. That government David establishes creates a framework in which the temple construction can happen. The author keeps telling us clearly throughout this passage how goods are being brought in through treaties, through victories, which are going to go into the temple. He's telling us clearly, here's where the pillars came from. Here's where the sea came from. Here's where the vessels came from. Here's where the utensils came from. The Messiah, David, is literally bringing in from the nations the things with which the temple will be built and populated. So even though David doesn't get to build the physical structure, it is his work as Messiah to prepare a place for God to dwell among his people. This is in many ways the ultimate goal of the ministry and kingship of David, the end game of all of the other benefits of David's reign and his rule, the peace he achieves, the prosperity, the security, the order, all establish a land in which God and his people can dwell together. Even the sweetness of the promise that David's house would reign forever is bound up with that sweetness that we can expect that this will be a reign 
over a people who dwell secure with God. This points our eyes towards the victorious descendant of David and what he will achieve when he fulfills all the promises that God has made to David and his people. We can see a little bit here already why God still is allowing the temple to be constructed when he has already told David that he doesn't need it, that he doesn't need the shelter of a house among his people. The temple is being built for his people's sake so that they can see that he dwells with them, even that they can see that this is being accomplished, the house is being built by David and by his son, by the kings of David's line. And this points us to look at what Christ the King accomplishes for us through his victories. As he defeats every enemy between us and God, everything that separates us from dwelling secure and at peace with God, sin and death, so that God can intimately dwell with us. We see through these victories what that wonderful, victorious kingdom of our Messiah looks like. Like David, Jesus' kingdom goes north, it goes south, east, and west. It goes to every border. In fact, the borders of Jesus' kingdom are so secure that there will be no more borders. Peace will be established in every corner of creation. His name, like David's, will be magnified. So magnified that all on the new heavens and new earth will sing and praise his name for all eternity. His peace will be unshakable. No enemy left to fear. No thought or possibility of any uprising, insurrection, or animosity in the kingdom of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And just like David brought gold and silver and bronze out from the nations to build the house of God, Jesus' victory plunders the nations, plunders his enemies, drawing out from all corners of the world stones to build a house for God, even us. We ourselves are the spoil taken from the kingdom of darkness to build God's great house. Every salvation is a victory that not only defeats God's enemies, but further establishes his dwelling place at peace among his people, even in our very hearts, never to be parted from us. We are already enjoying the first fruits of that victory. We are already experiencing that joy of God's Spirit dwelling in us. And those victories that have been achieved, that peace with God that has been accomplished by Christ, assures us of that this will be brought to completion. Our sanctification is His commitment to our glorification. His victory assures us that one day he will be seen to reign over all the earth in peace forever and ever, and that will be a kingdom where God's people, all of us, will dwell sweetly in the presence of God. Let's read chapter 19 to see one more uh, true thing accomplished by the messianic victories of David that points us to the victories of Christ. 
1 Chronicles 19. Now after this, Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, and his son reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal kindly with Hanun, the son of Nahash, for his father dealt kindly with me. So David sent messengers to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, to Hanun, to console him. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Have not his servants come to you to search and to overthrow and to spy out the land? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved them and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away, and they departed. When David was told concerning the men, he sent messengers to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, Remain at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, Hanun and the Ammonites sent 1,000 talents of silver to hire chariots and horsemen from Mesopotamia, from Aram, Makkah, and from Zobah. They hired 32,000 chariots, and the king of Makkah went with his army, who came and encamped before Mediba. And the Ammonites were mustered from their cities and came to battle. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city, and the kings who had come were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of his best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and they were arrayed against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will help you. Be strong and let us use our strength for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near before the Syrians for battle, and they fled before them. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai, Joab's brother, and entered the city. Then Joab came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they sent messengers and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, and Shophak, the commander of the army of Hadadezer, at their head. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to them and drew up his forces against them. And when David set the battle in array against the Syrians, they fought with him, and the Syrians fled before Israel. And David killed of the Syrians the men of 7,000 chariots and 40,000 foot soldiers, and put to death also Shophak, the commander of their army. And when the servants of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David and became subject to him. So the Syrians were not willing to save the Ammonites anymore. Our third point this morning is this. The victory of the Messiah restores his shamed people. So now our passage zeroes in to focus on one particular victory. David sends a peaceful envoy to Hanun, the new king of the Ammonites. He wants a relationship with him like he had with his father, a relationship of peace. Hanun rebuffs him, but he doesn't just rebuff him. He shames the messengers of David and sends them away in their shame. And of course, you have to sort of sit for a little bit in the cultural context of what's going on here to appreciate just how shameful it would be for these men to be publicly exposed among their enemies and their people 
shaving them then as a lasting sign of their disgrace. David quickly, of course, sends new messengers to shelter and take care of these men. He shelters them in their shame until they can return to Jerusalem. But now the Ammonites know that they have become a stench to David. Not just that they have declared themselves to be his enemies. Their shaming of the envoy of the ambassadors is meant to shame David himself. The actions against the people of David are seen as an action against the king himself. And that makes them a repugnant stench in the nose of David. So here is another reason that the Messiah goes to war. And another reason he wins. Yes, to establish his kingdom. Yes, to establish a place for God to dwell. But that kingdom presence reigned over by Christ dwelling with God will be for us as well. It is for Christ. It is for God. It is also for his people. Not just to give us a home, but to restore us from our shame. We see in the case of the Ammonites that David doesn't have to go to war. He initially wants peace with the Ammonites. He, he feels no mandate from God, no command to fight or defeat them. But then he becomes obligated. He is obligated to fight them based on the way that they have treated his people. Based on the way that they have insulted him by insulting his ambassadors. Now he must go by virtue of his character to bring honor to those who have been shamed. And because the shame of his people is an insult to him, their king. Now, brothers and sisters, sometimes you might feel a great deal like the ambassadors of David. We have been chosen by God as lights in the world. This is not our home. We don't feel at home here. We are exiles in a different kingdom. But God desires we be here to represent and to serve him. We serve him primarily by going out in the world proclaiming a message of peace. That we have a good king that desires peace with people. And many people will hate that offer. Like the counselors of Hanun, they will misconstrue it. They will fear losing the things they love in this world. They will misconstrue the very heart of our good king. And they will not just rebuff him. They will not just say that they are his enemies, but they will do all they can to shame and dishonor his ambassadors. We expect many people to treat us like the Ammonites treated David's men. The Ammonites then make an alliance with Syria. Now they feel confident to insult, insult David. They feel like they can mock him because they look secure. Because they have a great army, they must have the upper hand. But we know our God. The world feels secure in its own territory. The world feels like it has the greater power. Like it has the upper hand. But God gives our Messiah the victory. And when the name of the Messiah is lifted up, he also will lift up the heads of those who have been shamed of his people. David charged against the army of 
the Ammonites and the Syrians, Joab and his brother fought with all the strength that the Lord supplied. They seemed outmatched, but they entrusted themselves to God. And the enemies who had shamed God's people were subjected to the rule of the Messiah. Consider what this means. Consider what it means for the readers of, the, of Chronicles. The shame that they felt sitting in the ruins of Jerusalem, enemies all around them, mocking, oppressing. Their God saw their shame, just as he saw the shame of David's ambassadors. And just as the Messiah vindicated them, these readers can expect vindication from God. And he still looks graciously down on the shame of his people. Do not let the world's attempts to shame or belittle you and mock your God and the gospel of Jesus Christ unsettle you from your trust in the Messiah and your confidence in his victory and even his vindication of his people. The world feels confident. The world feels secure. But we have the real reason to be confident we can go out proclaiming the message of peace from our king. We can even be confident that many people will hear and respond to that message, that victory over the world will be achieved in salvation of sinners, even now, even through our work as ambassadors in this world. God will draw out many from the nations to populate the dwelling place of God, even as other people reject and scorn us. But then we also remember that for those who scorn us, who persecute and insult Christ by shaming his body, the church, the day of vindication is coming. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 to 12, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you is believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Messiah is coming. And that is a warning to anyone who remains his enemy, who clings to the small treasures of this world and mocks and shames God's people. It is a warning to turn and repent. That even at the cost of this whole world and its treasures, it is better to be scorned and shamed here because our Messiah is coming to lift up the heads of his shamed people. He will defeat all those who felt so confident and secure to despise him by rejecting his offer of peace 
and his ambassadors. Paul knew this. And we see in his own life a confirmation of that confidence that he declares to the Thessalonians, living as a bold ambassador, going from city to city, mortifying his own sin, letting go of the treasures of this world, proclaiming the gospel, facing scorn and persecution wherever he went. And the world could not unsettle his confidence. His hope was secure. And we can be all the more bold Because our Messiah is one who came and experienced that scorn and shame himself. He came into the world. He came among his enemies, despised and rejected, suffering the greatest shame on the cross, bearing the full weight of the scorn and abuse that our sin deserves. Peter says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So brothers and sisters, Do we so delight in our Messiah? Are we so confident in his kingship and the Lord who gives him victory that we are not just ready to be opposed, but we can count it as a blessing to be numbered among those who are insulted for his name? Is it a joy to us to be scorned by this world, because even they are counting us as those who belong to God, even if they hate us for it because they hate him. Even they will say that we belong to Jesus, the one who suffered shame and died for us. Would we count it a blessing to know that they are scorning us because we are trusting in, proclaiming the glory of, and even extending the peace of our Savior and King, Jesus. Friends, it is even a blessing to follow him even part of the way down that road of suffering and rejection that he walked for us. God sees it and delights in it and will honor that when he comes to vindicate his saints, all the people of Jesus Christ when the Messiah's kingdom touches north, south, east, and west. Let us with confidence go out now. Let us fight the good fight of faith against sin and temptation and let us proclaim peace to the enemies of God, the kingdoms of this world. May we be unwavered by those who despise and reject us and scorn us. Let us serve him heartily as ambassadors because we know his victory is sure, as sure as it was certain for David, as sure as Christ did rise from the dead in history, in this world. Even now, this world is waiting for the victory that he will complete. 
because he keeps his promises and is able to keep them. Let us hope for that day when all promises are honored and kept fully for David, for Christ, and for the people of the Messiah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of victory we see in your word, for the victories that you have accomplished, for how we have already seen your faithfulness to your promises. Father, may we be confident that you are the God who will bring about all that you have promised you will do. Just as surely as that work has been begun, it will be completed. Father, may we be confident and faithful that even if we are suffering, even if we are experiencing shame, this is also a part of your great plan of victory, to bring in more plunder to populate your house. And Father, even to get glory through the victory that Christ will achieve over those who have declared that they are your enemies. May we hope in Christ, trust in Christ, And Father, may we even by your spirit count it as blessing to be insulted for his name because there is no greater blessing than to know that we belong to Jesus Christ. To him be glory. Through us, his people, through all creation, all history, forever and ever. Amen.